All right, well, good morning, Salem. Well, uh, hopefully have you guys are, had a great week this last week, and um, this last week for, uh, for me was, was a little different. Um, my, my wife, Nikki, had her shot um, on, uh, where was this, Thursday uh, or Friday, and, uh, and so I got the wonderful uh, privilege uh, of kind of being on, on Eden duty. And, uh, and so, like, I want to first, first of all acknowledge, uh, you know, the difficulty of watching a almost three-year-old for <laughs> that long of a time. Um, and then second of all, just acknowledge the pain and the, the, just the grossness of the, you know, what you feel sometimes when you go through that second shot. And so uh, my wife was, was in no sense in a, in a good place, but here I am. And I, I just want to acknowledge that before I tell you about my day, Okay. <laughs> Okay, so here, here, was my, here was my day on, uh, on, uh, on Friday. Is, uh, so I woke up and, and uh, got Eden uh, out of bed. And uh, Eden loves it when I make eggs. That's her, kind of her favorite thing that when I do that on a, on a special day for her. And so uh, she always requests that. And so that morning I got her up and she said, you know, I want an egg. And I said, well, I would love to make for you something special. And it has egg in it. And so I found this little recipe, like this kind of like a, almost like a, like a rolled up kind of a French toast, you know, type of a thing. And I thought, oh, this is going to be really, really good. So I spent uh, like an hour just, just grueling in, in all of my culinary skills, uh, trying to make this thing work, and they're like falling apart, and it's just, it's just, it's just bad, you know. But I finally finished them, and, uh, and they don't taste that bad, right? I thought that they tasted good. And so I, I bring them to Eden, and she, she looks at it, and she says, no. <laughs> I was like, I, but, I, but I, this took me an hour. I, this took me an hour. And she's like, no. <laughs> So I said, well, try one bite, and then we'll, we'll see. You know, so she, she takes the, the, the tiniest little nibble and goes, no. And so I thought, okay, so I'll make you some eggs. And so I just took the rest of the egg batter, just dumped in all the sausage, and, and added some bacon for her. And then I, you know, I fry it up, and, and then I bring it to her. And she, she looks at it, and she goes, I don't want sausage. <laughs> Okay, um, so I go back and then I, I fry just a single solo egg and then and I bring it back to her and just a little bit of salt, no pepper, always her request. So I bring it back to her and she just devours it and loves it. And I'm like, oh, thank you. <laughs> but she goes, but more egg. <laughs> and I said, you know, I'm not making another one so you can have the other eggs. So I bring her the other eggs with all the sausage and she just devours it. And I'm like, come on, like, this is ridiculous. Like, she just keeps doing this over and over. And so, as it goes, right, um, I'm just, and then I clean up all of the breakfast stuff, uh, and then I finally get her into a spot where she is coloring books, and I think, this is my time. And so, I finish my, I get my coffee, uh, I add all my stuff that I need, and I, and I go to sit down with my, with my Bible uh, by the window, this is my cave time chair spot, and I go to sit down, and as I'm sitting sitting down, there was liquid on the rim of my coffee, and so I'm sitting down, and it slips out of my hand and goes like this, all over me, burns my stomach, goes all over the floor, all over the chair, like everywhere, and I'm like, just everything inside of me wants to scream, <laughs> and I keep it in, because that's what you do. So I, I'm like, like writhing in pain, and I get up, and she's just coloring her books, and, and so I go, and I get... Um, 
I get a towel. I get it like a used towel, and I wet it, and I bring it over to kind of dab this thing. And as, as I'm dabbing the chair, it's this, this, this tan chair, and as I start to dab it and start to wipe, I notice that there are streaks of color coming out of the towel. <laughs> and it turns out it's, it's one of her chalk towels and marker towels. <laughs> so, so I'm like, no, like what? This is so wrong. <laughs> It's so frustrating. Just wait. It keeps getting. It keeps going. And so I, I finally find a clean spot on the towel, and I finally get it wiped up, and I can't sit in my chair because it's all soaked, and so like, I have to go. And then I'm just like, I get in cleaning mode, and I'm just like out of it, and so I start cleaning. And then my dog comes, and she's letting me know that she needs to go outside. And so I let the dog out, and then I see her. I watch her out the window because we don't have our fence in yet, and so I'm watching her, and she's a white Siberian husky, just absolutely gorgeous. And then I see her go into the neighbor's yard, sniff something, and then just lay down and just start rolling. And I thought, oh no. So I knock on the window, she comes bolting back in, so very good response from her. She comes back in and I look and sure enough, there's just brown and yellow smeared all of her side, this gorgeous white side. And I'm like, okay, this is, okay, so what do I do? I run inside, I grab a towel, I wet it, and I go back out and I start to wipe her and not realizing that, that I had grabbed the same towel. <laughs> I kid you not, like how, how dumb is this? And so I'm like wiping her and then like there's this, this pink smear, purple down the side. I'm like, what in the world? Like it was just this over and over and it like just, it escalated and escalated and escalated. And then it, after I kind of got done, it's like in, an, like in two hour time, like time span. And it made me think of this last year. How just like how one thing after another, one thing after another, one thing after another. And when we get into these zones, right, like after so many things just continue to pile up, like we just get on edge. And we're just like, we're just we're ready almost to snap. And it's really easy for us in these moments because I remember Eden asking me a question and I had to catch myself because it's so easy to, to snap back and to point fingers. And I've never, and I'm sure that you probably would say this is true, um, I've never been in a year or a, such a long period of time when, when people are more ready to point fingers at somebody else. It's just, it's been a long year, one thing after another. And as you take, if you take out all of the, all of the language, that, the, like this trigger language, the stuff that you hear on the news, um, all those, that, you take away all of those things and you look to the very bottom of what we're talking about, we're ultimately just talking about the brokenness of the world, right? Like it's, it's, it's true, it's, it's there. And so if we remember, um, this last week, uh, we talked about this a, a little bit, um, and we talked about how God gave us this design, right? He says, I have a purpose for you, but, but for so many of us, like in, in all of the times, even though we understand this is true, we have this tendency to lean into our preferences, Doesn't quite fit, right? Um, and so there's this for us, like we know that this is the, this is the small version, right? This is the simple view, is that God says, I have a purpose for you, and yet for, for us, myself included, we have this tendency to lean into our own preferences. And that happens all throughout life in, in so many different ways. 
over and over and over. And really, this is just a, a small picture view of something much bigger. And really, that's this, is that this is actually God's plan versus my plan. And so if you were to go back to Genesis 1, you find that the, the God's plan for us is that we were made in whose image? God's. We were made in Yahweh's image. That was his plan. And what happens then is that we end up choosing our own plan and we begin to build our own image, right? And so there's this, the depth of the brokenness here is something that we have to address, right? This is the nature of the human heart. This is, this is the total depravity that we live in. It's just over and over and over that God has a plan for us and yet we tend to, to lean into our, our own our our own preferences. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, however we experience uh, this brokenness, however we understand or experience this depravity, this mess in our lives, every single one of us hopes for and longs for a day in which things will be made right. We may not always think about it, but it's wired in us intrinsically, and it's innately powerful that this is what we want. We long for a world in which things are actually made right. The question is, how are those things made right? How are those things made right? And so for, for us, as we enter back into this story, one of the things that we'll see, and we talked about this last week a little bit, is that what Jonah seems to want is this idea of justice. He says, I want God to enter into this story, and I want him to do something big. I want him to do something amazing and incredible, except in his mind, he's not thinking about repentance. He's thinking about something else. And so Jonah actually makes a common mistake for, for us as humans. He's the symbol, is that he mistakes justice for judgment, he says, I want God to show up and bring the hammer. Really, that's ultimately what he wants. And there's a difference between judgment and justice. And that's what we're going to kind of unpack a little bit today. So we're going to enter back into this story. If you remember Jonah, we're in chapter 3, we're in verse 6. We've only got two weeks uh, after this, and then we'll be done uh, with Jonah. And so if you remember the story, right, is that Jonah enters into the city. It's a three days journey. And he calls out this prophecy. And he says, so yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And there's no more good news after that. And yet he begins to see this wave taking effect. And here's where we start in verse 6. It says, the word reached the king of Nineveh. Okay, so what started in the people now has filtered its way. It's, it's the wave, and here it goes. And it makes it all the way through the people and all the way to the king. And it says that he arose from his I just want to stop there for a second and just, po just point out a couple of quick observations. Because if you remember back at the beginning of the story with Jonah, is that the word of the Lord came to who? Jonah, the son of Amittai, right? It came to Jonah personally. It's interesting that there's a contrast here because the word of the Lord came directly to Jonah and Jonah rejects it. He flees. He goes the other way. And yet here, the word of the Lord comes second hand, third hand, fourth hand, fifth hand, really through the people, Right? And yet the king, we're going to find that the king is more receptive to this than even Jonah, the son of righteousness, which is crazy, right? So it's the king of Nineveh, and it says, what? Well, he arose. That word arose is the exact same word as in the beginning of chapter 1, right? When, when God calls Jonah, he says, I want you to arise. And so what does Jonah do? He arises. But then he flees. He runs. 
And so here, as the story really starts, we see these same word patterns emerging, and we think, okay, what's, what's going to happen? The king just did the same thing that Jonah did, so, so what is he going to do? What's it going to look like? How is this going to play out? But there's something very different about this scenario with the king than Jonah, because where is the king? He's sitting on a throne, He's sitting on a throne. This, this is one of the most powerful men in, in the known world at the time. Where did, where did the word of the Lord go with Jonah? Was he underneath a tree? Was he at a coffee shop? I don't know. But this king is sitting on a throne. And just a reminder, with one call, this guy can invade and take over entire countries. With, with one call, he could build massive buildings. He could feed the hungry. He could feed the starving. He could, with one phone call, he's one of the most powerful men in the known world. And so then there's this question, right? Is as, as the king arises from his throne, we as the reader and as the listener are going, okay, what's he going to do? How is he going to exercise his authority? What is this going to look like? And the first thing that it tells us in this next part of the verse is that he took off his what? He took off his robe. He takes this off. And I imagine him, we don't know what he does with it, but I imagine him setting it like back on the throne. And so for, so for the king, if you're wearing your royal robe, your royal throne, right, everything about this is what indicates and, and, and designates you as a powerful, significant, important person. Because this, in this space, is where he can make a phone call and, and make the world different. And so he gets up. And it's totally unexpected. He removes the thing that symbolizes his power, and he sets it aside. He sets it aside, and then he, what, does, what does he do? He picks up and puts on sackcloth. Okay, this is all that I have at home. It's a, it's a coffee bean bag. Um, I love coffee. Um, and uh, this is kind of like a sackcloth, right? It's a burlap sack. And if you've ever held one of these things or just touch it, and you could touch it in between services, it's just super prickly. It's not at all comfortable. It wouldn't even be warm. And so what they did, this was their practice, is that they would take sackcloth and they would put it over their body. And in so doing, what this symbolizes is this level of discomfort, that there is a mess, an inner turmoil that is happening inside of my heart. And so if I can outwardly demonstrate the pain and suffering that I feel on the inside, this moving, remember, the nice comfy throne, the nice comfy robes, all of that is comfort and designation of power and importance and significance. And here, he puts on sackcloth, and all of a sudden, it becomes a symbol of his discomfort. And then, what he does is that he sits, he kneels, and he sits in ashes. And so, by the way, of all of the people who are practicing this in, in, the, in the city, it doesn't say that they sit in ashes, it just says they put on sackcloth. So here, the king is leading by example. As the word reaches him, he demonstrates in this way, I am the exact same person as everybody else in my city. He acknowledges the totality of their brokenness. This is an expression of how deep our sin runs and how much we go, gosh, 
Like, I understand, I realize the significance of the wrong that is in our lives. And you go, this is totally backwards from what you would expect, right? So as, as the king would have rose from, from his chair, you would be thinking, what's he going to do? Is he going to hurl Jonah out the door? That seems pretty likely. Is he going to call for tea? <laughs> is he going to wrap him in a big bear hug? That seems unlikely. Does he call for the executioner? That seems very likely given the Ninevites' past and culture. And yet, what does he do? He takes off his robe, he puts on sackcloth, and then he kneels in the ashes. And it's this wave of disruption running through the entire city. And if you're Jonah and you're watching this unfold, you go, no! <laughs> No, 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 no. This is not the way it's supposed to go. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. When I came here, I gave you five words. God is supposed to bring the hammer, the judgment, the big no-no on you. And what happens is it's totally backwards. It's totally upside down. And this wave of repentance is spreading through the city. And it's this moment where as the author is trying to help us understand, as readers, this is totally upside down. It's totally backwards from the way that it's really supposed to be, the way that we think that it will unfold. This isn't normal. And so it really begs the question, because really the book of Jonah is really an indictment against Jonah more than anything else, right? And so really it begs the question for us as readers, how is it that a city full of 120,000 people who don't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand are more in tune with repentance than God's righteous servant? And it's very penetrating and powerful for we inside the church have a tendency to be very judgmental and to be judgy. And this is where we come from. We want judgment, judgment, judgment. And what God is working out is something far bigger in the form of justice, not just judgment, right? And it reminds me of 1 Peter 5, 5. I love the verse. It's not on the slide, but I love this verse, right? God opposes the who? The proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jonah has over and over and over demonstrated pride and arrogance, his own sinfulness, his own plan, his own preferences, and it's the Ninevites who have demonstrated true and deep humility. So how does the story can continue and unfold? Verse seven, it said, and he, so it's the king, right? So from this, this, this state, uh, of, of humility as he's sitting in ashes, wrapped in sackcloth, as he's sitting there. He hasn't gotten back up on his throne. He's sitting in this place, and he issues a proclamation or a decree, okay? And it says that he published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste 
anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. So, so here's what's funny, right? Um, this is that you look at this, is that the king issues a decree, and it's very natural. So they're already in ashes. Uh, they're already in sackcloth, so they're demonstrating true humility. But then they take this next step. It's like we're moving out of comfort. We're moving away from the things that we would normally lean into, and so they move into a fast. This is very normal, in, in, in the lives of us, or should be in our lives, and in the lives of, of the culture of that time, is moving towards a fast. And it makes, it's a little silly that you would have both humans and animals do it, right? It's a little silly, but it even gets more silly, and this is where almost like humor begins to enter back into this story. Because can you imagine an entire city, as the king decrees, by the way, not only you, but all of your animals cover them in sackcloth. <laughs> like, you look at, like, the little schnauzers, like, when people put, like, the little cute, like, sweaters on them, and you're like, that's really cute. That's really adorable. This is a whole new level. There's, there's repentance in your home. Jimmy, Bobby, Sammy, Tina, Sue, everybody is repenting, and little Scruffy. <laughs> and you put, and you, like, can you imagine, like, like, the horse. A horse can't sin. A cow can't sin, right? A dog can't sin. And yet, he says, like, cover them in sackcloth. I just imagine and picture somebody trying to, like, put sackcloth on, like, their pet parakeet, you know? Like, it's just, it's just humorous. It's just funny. Why are they doing this? Well, one idea is that uh, in Assyrian culture or in the ancient Near Eastern culture, um, that there was a strong tie between humans and animals because they're living creatures. And so, so there's this, this connection, and so they would do that together. But, but really for us as readers, from a theological, from a Christian standpoint, it expresses the totality, I think, the totality of their repentance. It's as if they're saying, God, we don't know much about anything, but we're going to cover all of our bases. Whatever it is, we're going to show our seriousness in, in our repentance. In, in all of its totality, we're exiting out of comfort. It's not just us, it's our animals too, our entire families, our entire city is, is entering into this place, this state of humility in front of, of you. And then he says, at the end of that, he says, I want you to, to call out mightily on God. And there's this, this, that word mightily is really, in Hebrew, this sense of urgency. By the way, this is the second time that we've seen somebody other than Jonah call out to God in distress, right? Back in the sailors, right? In the middle of the storm, as the storm is raging and the boat is up, these people are calling out upon their gods. And yet here, it's the same thing, except it's directed on Yahweh, call out on God. And there's this strong sense of urgency, this immediacy. And yet, here's what's interesting. There's no place in this story where Jonah is urgent. There's no urgency in Jonah throughout this entire story. And now it's happened on multiple occasions in the lives of the people that God sends Jonah to, right? It's absolutely incredible. But then it culminates in this next, this end of this verse. It says, let everyone turn from his evil way, and from the violence that is in his hands. 
The word turn is, is really, a really important word. In the Hebrew, it's actually it's the word shuv, okay? So think of shove, but kind of a different pronunciation. So shuv, it's this word that really just means or demonstrates to, to turn. So it's like if I'm walking in life, and all of a sudden I'm confronted with something in my life, something happens, and so God meets me, uh, and there's this wall, and I, and I begin to sense, sense and see and, and have this realization that the path that I'm on is leading to doom and destruction or to, to, to something that is wrong. So what we do is that the teshuv is just to turn. It's to turn and to walk back the other way. That's what turning is. That's what shuv is. And in English, we oftentimes get that word. Um, it's where we get the word repentance. We've heard that word. And sometimes when we hear that word, we, we get this, this kind of scary feeling because we associate it with, with doom and impending judgment. And it's kind of a scary word. It doesn't, it doesn't contain a very, uh, a very high, uh, strong sense of support in our culture. <laughs> right? You talk about repentance and people go, oh gosh, that's who you are. Even inside the church, it's kind of viewed negatively because we have this association, these negative associations with the word. But it's in a tremendously important part of the Bible story, right? Because it's rooted in our sin. We constantly over and over need to turn from our sin. And so really, as we look at this, we come back to, uh, to our... Um, to our board here. So as we think about this, if we're, if we're starting over here in God's purpose, okay, and here we are, we're walking, we're walking, we're walking away from God's purpose, right, and we're moving towards our preferences because that's what we want in life. We want to choose our plan over God's plan. It's so easy for us to look at this and to black highlighter through the Bible, that's not relevant anymore, that's not okay, that's not normal, that doesn't fit with our culture, and so we move towards our own preferences. This is the way that I want. But what happens in this is that we have to shuv, and we turn, and we make this U-turn, and where we find ourselves heading back to the purpose of God. And it's so normal in our lives because the sin that in, is involved in every decision, the sin that's in our hearts, it's this U-turn is what shuv means, to U-turn away from my preferences, away from my sin, away from my plan, and back towards God's plan. What I love about this, this verse is actually this king is very insightful in his statement because when he's saying this, he says, let everyone turn from Whose evil way? His. His evil way, and from the violence in his own hands. And so it says that the king has this full realization as he's sitting in ashes with sackcloth and, and doing this fast, he says, this is for me. I'm doing this for myself. But guess what? Only you, each individual person in all of Nineveh, you, only you can turn from your evil ways. He's leading by example, and he's saying, this is a personal thing between you and the creator, God. This is up to you. It's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly insightful. And isn't it, isn't it interesting that that seems to be the cry in our world today? There seems to be that there's just violence in our hands. This is the world that we live in. 
And it makes us uncomfortable to talk about, but there's violence over and over. And if it's not me taking or doing something in my own hands, at the very least, it's me pointing fingers. And that there's violence even in that. That's the world that we live in. And that's where we are. We long, after a long year, we long for justice. We long for things to be made right in the world, go back to the way that it was over and over and over again. This is the cry of our heart. And I love this question in verse 9. It's this incredibly, incredibly powerful question as the king is in this place of reminiscing of this total repentance. Here's what he says in full humility. He doesn't demand or expect anything from God, but he says this, who knows, question mark, and who knows? Who knows what God will do? Who knows what God wants to do? God may turn, he may shove, he may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Who knows what God wants to do? And here's what's what's so important about this question, because the author is helping us understand that there is this tension, okay? So the king is basically posing is posing a very insightful uh, and powerful question. How does God interact with the world that we live in? Who is God and how does he interact in our world? That's the question that he's really asking. Who knows? Who knows what he's going to do? Well, God knows. Okay, so here's the deal. So when we think about, we think about God, right, the characteristics of God, I just want to focus on this first one, right? God is love. We know that this is true, right? God is a God of love. This is his disposition in all things is that he acts out of love always. He never ceases to be loving, ever. Even though sometimes he does things that feel or may seem unloving, it is always generated out of love. Whatever he's doing is generated out of love, right? But we also have this truth, right, that that God is what? He's holy, So he is a God who is loving, and yet he is also a God who is holy, which means that he is totally set apart. So in all of his goodness, in all of his perfection, in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, in all of his might, in all of that is what defines him, is that he is set apart from humanity. So here we have, this this is the tension, right? We have a God who is full of love, and yet who is totally holy, and this is where the, this question, who knows, enters in, because what happens when sin enters into the world? How does a God who is fully loving and a God who is holy interact with a world that is littered with sin? Do you see the tension here? This is, this is the tension. So I want to just pose a, a question or like kind of a, a hypothetical. So Nikki and I live um, right next to or on the north side of, of Horizon Middle School. Um, I'm not going to tell you what address because I don't, well, you can't TPS. We don't have any trees. Um, so um, we live over there. And so we drive by um, oftentimes in the afternoon or we go for walks and we'll see middle schoolers out playing or running track or whatever. So what happens if, if as I'm walking by, say I'm walking our dog, and I see um, a group of middle school students picking on another student? 
If they're just, maybe they're just teasing, how do I interact? How do I engage with those people? Maybe they start to shove. Maybe they're just full on pummeling a kid. Is it loving for me to see that and then just to pass by? No, it's not, right? Like the answer is no. It's not loving for me just to pass by or to watch. So how do I interact? Do I shout from the sides, hey, that's not okay? Or do I intervene? Do I run and sprint and with all of my high school linebacker form, take them all out? That, I would never do that, but that would be awesome, right, by the way? Right? Is that loving? No, it's not. So that's the tension. How is it that God, who is full of love and yet fully holy, how does he engage and interact with the world when sin enters into the equation? So if we come back to this board, what we have to learn... Oh, what's going to do down here? That's a G, and that's an M, sorry is judgment. Is this word judgment? If you long for a world where God makes things right, guess what? You long for a world where there is judgment. And you're like, wait, what? Why? Why is that true? Because if if the world is going to be made right, guess what? The only way to start is if we acknowledge the things that make it wrong. And so judgment is a key piece of how God is going to make the world right. And it's both loving and it's holy. Because it's not loving if I just pass by the kids and I don't say anything. That's not loving. And so I have to declare that there is something that is wrong with that scenario in order for it to be made right. It's deeply, deeply important. It also is holy. Because God's not okay with the sin. He's not okay with that, right? And so judgment is something that we long for. But here's the question. Can we stop with judgment? Is this, is, does this fix it? You know, when we think about all of this, right, purpose, God's plan, uh, and, and, and our plan, our preferences, right, judgment has to be a part of whatever God is going to do to make the world right. It has to address the nature of the human heart. But by saying, this is what's wrong right here, does that solve the problem? No. Whatever it is, there must be something more, Right? And so that's where grace enters back in. It's where grace enters into the story. And it's only, only in this type of a function, it's only in acknowledging the totality of this that we begin to see who God is and the way that he interacts with and defines his interaction in this world. Grace is the unmerited favor, right, of God. It's by grace, through faith, that we have the forgiveness of sins. It's only with both judgment and grace that God can actually do something in this world. And both of them stem from his love and his holiness. Do you get that? But here's the tension if we come back to this. Here's the tension if we come back to this. If, if we are the human being in this story, we have the tendency to oversimplify this entire thing. We oversimplify all of it. And what we do is that we make it about me and about you. Because if this is me, 
right here. Here's what I want from God. Grace. All the time, hands down, I want grace. But guess what? What do I want for other people? Judgment. And this is the tension. And this is exactly what Jonah shows. He says, like, God, I, like, I'm so glad you did everything for me. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. But don't give, don't give, don't give. Grace, right? Invoke judgment. Bring the hammer. And so we begin to see there's a huge difference between justice and judgment in this story. And the reason why we do this is very important. The reason why we do this is if you remember back in verse 6, right, it says that the king got off of his throne. He arose from his throne and he sat in the ashes. Here's my question. How long do you think that lasted? How long do you think that the king, or for, or for us in either case, whoever it is, how long do we live in the ashes? We, we are there for a moment, and we are there for a time, but do you think that the king did the rest of his ruling for the final, the end of his career, do you think he, he constantly sat in the ashes? No, is that over time, we slither back up, and we find ourselves where? Back on our throne. And so where we were just in God's purpose, now I'm back in my preference. And it's the cycle over and over and over. And what's very interesting about this is if we come back to the board is that we actually, again, we're moving away from God's purpose, or we're moving away from God's purpose, we turn back towards it, but then we have this realization that we really want to do life the way that we were. And so we repent of our repentance. And we end up living inside of this circle right here. Just over and over and over. God's purpose, my preference. God's purpose, my preference. And we just live in this circle. And I would think that for any of us, I can state this with full humility of myself. When I am living in that circle, guess what? I know that it's not satisfying. It's not, it's not a fun place for me to be. And I also know that when I'm in that circle, I'm not helping to advance the kingdom of God. Because I'm just, I'm just giving in to me and me and me over and over and over. And so oftentimes in life, we want judgment to enter into a scenario, and yet we miss the bigger picture of justice. We miss what God really ultimately wants to do. And we ask this question, who knows, right? Who knows what God wants to do? But then verse 10, what does God do? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. And if you're Jonah, he should be rejoicing, and yet he would probably be like, this isn't justice. This isn't justice because you didn't hold them accountable. It's not what I wanted you to do. Well, Jonah, you're confusing justice with judgment. Judgment is very much a part of this, but justice is something different. And we go, hold on a moment, Jonah, because this is justice. Check out this verse in Philippians 2. This is what he says. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not 
count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But instead, right, what does he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And then this last part says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what does that mean? It means that Jesus got up off of his throne He removed his royal robe, and then he got down in the ashes, and he entered into the muck, into the mess, and the grossness of life so that he could what? Die on a cross. And it's in so doing this that judgment is actually what he takes upon himself. And he absorbs all of the sin, all of the anger, all of the the brokenness of this world and all of the judgment and he takes it upon himself in his death on a cross. And so we say, Jonah, you may long for this, but the bigger picture of what God is trying to do is about justice. That's what's going on as we get to point ourselves in this story to the New Testament reality. This is justice. And too often we mistake judgment for justice. We may say we want justice, but really what we're expressing in our heart is that we long for judgment. But guys, can I tell you, justice has already happened right here. Fully and completely, it has already happened. And the question is whether or not we apply it. Whether or not we apply that in this world. Because we have the privilege and the opportunity to be people who enter into the world. And rather than pointing fingers, we get to point people to who? To Jesus. Both inside the church and outside the church, we constantly have this privilege to point people to Jesus, to allow all of the bitterness and all of the anger and all of the grossness of this world to be absorbed by what happened on that cross. That's a tremendous and powerful story. And if that's true, we ask this question, we end with this question, who knows? Who knows what God wants to do? Who knows what he is going to do? This last week, we had a a local mosque who was tagged, that was tagged with strong racial hate language. And Nikki and I got the chance to go, and as we got there, I was overwhelmed. Within 45 minutes, it was done because there was over 300 people who showed up to make a difference. And I go, man, I wanna be a part of a church that makes an impact, that makes a difference in this world. We can point people to Jesus. I love that, it's so good. Let me uh, just share a couple of questions um, with you. I'm going to invite the uh, worship team to come up. And we're going to sing kind of a, a, new, a new song. Um, I just want to just these cave table row questions, right? First one. Uh, I just encourage you to, to use the word Yahweh, okay? Uh, Yahweh is the personal name of God. And so in your prayers, just, you know, I just encourage you. Say, Yahweh, show me where I have been pointing fingers. Because we all do it. 
Where have we been pointing fingers? But really, it's that question of repentance. Where do I need to shove? What in my life do I need to, t- to turn from in my life? This is a, it should be a, almost a daily, weekly type of a thing. The next question. Table, I want to just encourage you. This week, in light of the mosque, in light of the entire year of difficulty, can I encourage you to have an honest, intentional, grace-filled conversation about the discomfort of the world? And begin to talk about it in real, big, impactful ways. And this last one is just simple, right? Ask that God would grant you at least one opportunity to point someone to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we are moving and wrapping up our our service here, Lord, we are so... We're reminded uh, of the goodness of the cross, this, and, I, and, I'm re- and I'm just, it's revealed inside of me the mess of my own heart, that, that I would say that I want justice, and yes, so oftentimes, God, I understand, Yahweh, I, I understand that really what my heart longs for is judgment, and I miss the bigger picture of where the gospel and grace really enters into the story. And so, Father, I thank you for Jesus who died on the cross for me, but for Jesus who died on the cross for this world. And so, Lord, may I never grow tired of sharing that. May you never grow tired of showing me how much I need your love in my mess. In your name we pray. Amen.